0: Welcome to Cognition. I'm Rolf Nelson.
1: And I'm Joe Hardy.
0: And today we have on, as a guest, uh, Dr. Stephanie Preston. You may remember Stephanie from episode seven where she talked about heroism and heroic acts. We're excited to have her back today. She's gonna to be talking a little bit about some of her recent work as we think about the holiday season and the kinds of things that we consume and uh, you know, the impacts they might have on the environment. Stephanie studies the relation between emotion and decision making. She works at the University of Michigan, where she's a professor in the psychology department. So, welcome to the show. Great to have you back again.
2: Thanks so much for having me, guys.
0: First, uh, maybe we want to talk about how you got into some of this research and uh, what made you think about, um, you know, patterns of acquiring material goods and, you know, the way that. Uh, people may become sometimes irrationally attached?
2: (laughs) That's a really good question. And there's almost a multitude of answers to the question. Um, But because I met you guys in graduate school, I think it sort of directly came out of my graduate research. I was in the biopsych area at Berkeley, and I studied food storing animals. So animals like squirrels and kangaroo rats. And I was interested in how they make decisions how to store the food, like the risk versus reward and the presence of competitors who might steal their caches, their memory constraints. And so how do they take in all these cues about the conditions in the environment and make a decision as to how to store food? Because there's different strategies. Animals don't all store food the same way, and they can change in response to different conditions. So I studied that in the brain. With the general idea that stress, like physiological stress, as you might experience from food deprivation, um, will cause a shift in hoarding strategy or like having all your food stolen by a competitor is stressful and it causes a shift in food strategy. So um, when I left graduate school, I was kind of interested in shifting into humans because that was when fMRI was becoming popular. And I thought, well, that would be really great if I could, you know, look into the brain of people while they're doing something and I don't even have to kill them. And that (laughs) sounded really promising direction for this kind of research. So at the University of Iowa in the hospital in neurology, they actually studied patients that have frontal lobe damage um, to the brain from from a variety of reasons. And those patients um, sometimes exhibit Compulsive hoarding, so like somebody who wasn't a hoarder before the brain damage becomes one after the damage. Um, so they they were studying the role of the orbital frontal cortex in this process of disinhibiting a hoarding tendency. And at the same time, they studied you know frontal patients and people with frontotemporal dementia. They often have empathy impairments. So. In both cases, you have this kind of emotional dysregulation that causes a behavioral change that really alters um, the structure of our behavior in ways that can be alarming or distressing. So I I became really interested in the neurobiological basis of these kinds of behaviors that are informed by emotion.
0: And, okay, so you started out working with uh, kangaroo rats and I think it was was it Miriam's kangaroo rats if I'm
2: wow that's a very good memory yes they are the food storing um variety and they have they have kinds that don't scatter hoard food like bigger ones that can just protect but the Miriam's are really good scatter hoarders with the exceptional hippocampal memory for the locations in space
0: so they have to store at all different kinds of locations little bit little caches of seeds and the hoarders the what is it larder hoarders store in uh, one big pile right
2: yeah you can kind of imagine it like you know a dominant bully and a weakling you know like the miriams is really small and a larder hoarding animal would be a bigger one and so a larder hoarding animal if you came into their den under the ground in like a burrow and you said i'm here to take all your food you know, they'd fight you for it and win, right? So they can just keep all the food right behind them in the den and hang out there and protect it actively. Whereas the smaller species, if somebody enters the den, they're too small really to fight back successfully. So they have evolved these memory structures that are even seasonally um, dependent. There's like great plasticity in the system. Um, So they can remember all of these different locations all over the desert basin floor where they might put like five seeds here, you know, five seeds five yards away. And then they live off of those um, deposits for the rest of the year, because it only rains a few times a year where they live.
0: And when you were doing this research, were you thinking of uh, possible applications to humans at the time? And I'm thinking, you know, are there any sorts of, you know, evolutionary mechanisms that might be conserved? I don't know that. Well, I don't know. Is that, you know, is there a relation between the story about a bully or a weakling that might translate into the way that humans might carry out this behavior? Or what you think that's a, a maybe a very separate kind of thing?
2: No, that's a really awesome um, insight. And some of that I only have been uh, researching recently. I mean, I think one reason I like the idea of studying hoarding because there is a real human um analog and it turns out homolog to that behavior. So people hoard stuff. They don't think of themselves as hoarders because they're so used to this behavior and it's so um, normative that it's not really considered a category of behavior. But so like your bank account is a larder hoard of money. But if you felt like the bank was insecure and somebody could get into your account and wipe it out, you would spread it around, right? You'd put like some in your mattress, some in a money market account, some, you know, with a friend, you know, so you would distribute it, you would scatter hoard it if you felt like your ability to control it was at risk and you were insecure about, you know, the future of this stockpile or like your pantry is a stockpile or a larder hoard of food. But I'm sure you've heard about people who like keep food in other secret locations because they don't want people taking it. <laughs>
0: I've heard it. about that. I've heard about it. Yeah,
2: <laughs> like they talk about the mom's hidden chocolates or yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Bible Halloween candy somewhere in their room, you know, like so. All of these behaviors you observe in people and you know financial markets and the way people diversify investments is a form of scatter hoarding. So it's all analogous. And what it turns out to be the case is it's not just similar looking. It's actually the same parts of the brain are mediating this process and they're affected the same way by emotions like anxiety, you know, security, fear, loss, you know, uh, reward, you know, the possible reward you get from the item. And so it's really homologous, which means. The same brain areas do the behavior in humans and other animals, including like rats, and not by accident, because we evolved from you know a mammalian common ancestor. That's what the homology means.
1: And it seems like from your some of your more recent research that um, an area of interest is this idea of loss aversion and whether someone is more attached to something that. Is already theirs, or they put something into to create uh there's not it's not like perfectly symmetric that you're as interested in it uh things that you know belong to someone else and things that belong to you,
2: yeah, that turns out to be a really powerful phenomenon. So, it's not one of those things that's like the replication crisis. It's just a (laughs) loony effect that someone got one time and it's going to go away. That is a really profound effect that you can get in repeated samples, even small samples. So, in economics, they would refer to it as the endowment effect. Um, So, like Kahneman, Tversky, and Thaler uh, worked this out originally, where let's say I give Joe a mug, (laughs) for example. And um, I say, Joe, this is your mug. And I say, Rolf, would you like to buy the mug off of Joe? And I say, like, you each set your price. Joe, how much would Rolf have to give you to take the mug from you? In your mind, hold up your mug that you actually are drinking out of. In your mind, how much money would Rolf have to give you to take the mug from you? And then Rolf, decide how much money are you willing to pay for that mug? Okay, and I,
0: I and i'm thinking yeah <laughs> and it, i mean it's there's something really intuitive about the idea that i'm not gonna pay joe as much for his mug as he really want. i mean it's his mug he's got an whatever emotional attachment he has to it he's probably gonna i'm quite pay attached more to, to this mug it.
1: i'm i i definitely am like this is a, a thing that i'd use every day you're gonna have to pay a lot I'm
0: not attached to it. I'll
1: give you, I'll give you two bucks. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was going to say 20 bucks. So
2: Exactly. Like that's yeah. a really like large effect size. Normally it's about double. So let's say Roth would say four and you would say eight. But that's because in the experiment, it's not a mug you've actually taken home and drinking right. out of. It's one they just handed to you. So like. It's like the they call the mere ownership effect. Like you don't even have to have owned it for more than a couple minutes. And sometimes they don't even let them handle the mug. And sometimes I do it on the web, and I just say pretend this is your mug. And no matter how you do it, you still get you know like about a double in the price.
0: That feeling of possession is so strong.
2: It
1: is. Yeah, one of the things I was thinking about that when tying it back to the previous story is like with those like caching creatures have the same thing are they like as attached they're more attached to their own nuts than than like the the you know what another critter across the way is 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 hoarding
2: that's a good question that's a good question
0: yeah do they like stolen do they like stolen seeds better than the ones that they've and <laughs> shipped over
2: well um they will steal but i think like once they've put in the effort to figure out where it is then um they assume it's safe and then they only go they go back to it occasionally and recache it just to keep the memory fresh, you know. But um, I, I don't know the answer to that, but we did have an intuition like that with little kids. So like I don't know if you have seen this in little kids where they're playing with toys and there's like a room full of toys, like at a preschool or a library or at a play date, and then there's plenty of toys for everyone, but as soon as one kid picks up a toy, the other kid is like, oh, I want that, you know, and then, like, fight breaks out amongst the toddlers as they're, like, grabbing for the same item, even though there's, like, hundreds of items that are, like, probably equally, if not more desirable, all around them, so we did, like, a study with little kids to see if we could demonstrate this, like, extra, it, it, we called it, like, a reverse endowment effect, where you really wanted something you saw someone else holding or playing with right you know, like, like a fomo coveting, effect it's like yeah you're coveting something that they have and you do kind of see it it's really hard to disentangle from like the the, the value of the item but like you, you you can kind of get both effects but one thing i think is really interesting related to roff's earlier question is people with hoarding tendencies so hoarding tendencies are in everybody, as I said before, only a small percentage of people have what they call hoarding disorder, which is the kind they have like TV show hoarders on A&E. You know, that's the dysregulated form um, called hoarding disorder. Um, but everyone has this continuous amount of hoarding tendencies. So if you look at hoarding tendencies or people with hoarding disorder, you can see that people who are more insecurely attached have stronger emotional attachments to their possessions. So it's kind of like, you know, the insecure individual feels more attached to the possessions because they're so worried about what will happen to them and they need them more for their like emotional comfort as if they're a caregiver or, you know, a partner. Um, And they, and, you know, if you like something more and you need it more, you're also more scared if somebody will take it away. And we also did a study on people who have OCD and some have washing symptoms and some have hoarding symptoms. And the people with hoarding symptoms report more fears about like physical safety and security. Hmm. So like if you give them these laundry lists of things you might possibly be scared of or anxious about, some of them are in common. You know, everyone's scared of rejection, you know, or failure. But people with hoarding um, tendencies were much more likely to actually fear, you know, being like attacked or someone like breaking into their house, right? So they do actually feel more vulnerable like the Miriams would to the more dominant um, species.
1: Hmm. I mean, it's interesting. My my father, uh, who passed away in the summer, uh, was cleaning out some of his stuff and realized that he was quite a hoarder of clothing which oh. is something i didn't know about him uh, previously <laughs> but you know he had like a thousand you know jackets and you know hundreds oh, of, really? pairs of shoes yeah um
2: i'm so and... sorry for your loss yeah thanks. did he keep it very organized like it wasn't noticeable or or everyone yeah it was,
1: everything was in the closets you know the closet he had a lot of closets of so two houses and they were all completely full. My mom has, like, a few clothes, but <laughs> it's mostly all my dad's <laughs> stuff. Yeah, and, it causes,
2: uh, like, a lot of domestic conflict, you know, because one person is sort of, like, slowly encroaching on all this base, and the other person feels like, you know, they're being taken over by the other person's possessions. I was going to mention we did a really neat study recently where we tried to link the endowment effect and hoarding tendencies. So... um you can't like directly study hoarding tendencies as well with the mug task because you're asking people about money. And we've shown that people who are interested in hoarding stuff or food are not as concerned about money. So like it's like confounding two different properties to use the mug task. So what we did is we had people come to the lab, just regular people, And they decorated pretzels, like you might have seen this as a craft, even at Christmas time, where like you can dip a pretzel in chocolate and then put sprinkles on it. And you can do any kind of design you want, any kind of decorations you want. So we had people come to the lab and they made their own pretzels. And then in the scanner, in the fMRI scanner, they would see their pretzels or other people's pretzels. And then they could work to save the item in the in the second block. So first they see it and they're like, oh, that's mine or that's yours. Then they can tap as hard as they can, as fast as they can for a period of time to try and influence the outcome and save it from being thrown in the trash. And then they find out if it got thrown in the trash or saved. And um, people with higher hoarding tendencies, even you know non-patients, are much more prone to show this self-other bias where everybody works harder, rates higher, pays more for pretzels they made than ones you made. Even though we both like the nicer ones better, you know, like if the decorating came out better, we um, will pay more for yours or mine to the degree that they look nice. But I'll always pay more for mine, you know, increasing with niceness. And people with hoarding tendencies have this effect exacerbated and these same brain areas that are engaged in hoarding behavior and like decision and reward more generally are activated when people with hoarding tendencies really want to get this pretzel right and the, and the brain just like explodes with activation when you are working to save the item even if you subtract out what kind of brain activity you need to motor tap at the same rate you can subtract that out and see what's left and there's still all of this like motor-cognitive um, activation that includes the insula, which is this sort of affectively powerful region.
0: Yeah, so, yeah. So, yeah. So let I there's a lot there. Um,
2: <laughs> sorry. <laughs>
0: That's
2: what viewers always say. <laughs> yeah.
0: know. <laughs> okay. So trying to put together the pieces of of what uh, might push someone over from sort of normal acquiring of objects or, you know, keeping things that are theirs at a reasonable level. Um, So how does it, I mean, we've got, you're talking about some brain activation that's correlated with this. How does that come about? uh, How does that develop in a person? And you mentioned it can be related to insecure attachments, style of relating to parental figures. And I wonder if this is if this is an explanation or what the what a full explanation of, of how this comes about? Can you think of it as a largely biological uh, thing? Or is it something that has a lot more to do with environment that, you know, might be from seeing other people hoard from, you know, other emotional, other emotional events that might cause this?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, that's always kind of like, the question that everybody wants to know, and I think the answer is always both basically right, right,
0: right, of course,
2: there is some genetic component to something like hoarding disorder um but but it wouldn't necessarily need to be specific to hoarding disorder. It could just be sort of like an emotion regulation um problem but but that's exacerbated, of course, by the environment you grew up in, right? and so when you feel insecurely attached, when you observe the people in your home valuing things over the relationships, when you feel insecure about people taking things or there's not enough to go around, and you have to go into this like more active, you know, not not so nonchalant mode, then um, it gets exacerbated and. I kind of think of hoarding disorder as one of those um they call them like final common pathway diseases where a lot of things have to be going wrong concurrently mm-hmm. for it to reach that level, right? And so there are so many demonstrations of cognitive and emotional disturbance in hoarding disorder that it's not really it's not really caused by any one thing. It's like you have trouble remembering, you have bad mem- meta memory so you think your memory's bad, so you better hold on to these things that you can remember. You you're anxious about what people are going to think about what you do. You're worried you'll make a mistake. If people take some st- some stuff, you actually value the items and you're attached to them. You see them as more valuable than other people do. You know, even something other people regard as garbage you see the good in, which, you know, isn't really a bad thing if you think about it, you know, like mm-hmm. people are so quick to throw something away or waste um that it's kind of admirable that they're, you know, reusing eggshells in the compost bin, but it becomes like a burden, like an emotional burden. And then once you throw some depression in the mix, who has time to like, put all these things in some appropriate place that's going to maximize their great value and utility and appreciation. So, you know, all of these things come together and um, just make the problem, like, very difficult to do something about. But I do think, you know, your family environment when you're growing up is a strong predictor. People have the intuition that I'm not willing to give up on that, you know, experiencing deprivation it's going to make you more likely to hoard, you know. Like people have anecdotal reports about the guy who lived through World War II and he carries right. yeah, yeah. everywhere he goes, you know. That was
0: the next. That was the next question too. Is <laughs> I mean, so that I mean, that was a that was a time when everyone experienced scarcity, you know, during the Depression and all that. Um, and it would be just a, a general cultural thing that you save, you know, a glass jars, an item of value, and you kind of see everything as important in a time of scarcity like that. So I guess that that sort of argues for, for the um, environmental impact or at least cultural impact there.
2: Again, yeah, I think you're going to end up with like an epigenetic thing, just like with PTSD, yeah. right? Like everyone went to the war, everybody gets traumatized by something they observed or experienced or lived through. And some people can't shake it, even after a while, you know, like it's just stuck deep deep in there. And it doesn't happen to everyone, but you know, there is some correlations with, you know, who ends up having more trouble. But like when they when they do studies and they try and see if like your economics or like hardship growing up impacts hoarding levels, they they get null effects, but mm. I also think they're not like the most precisely tested phenomena you know like I think it's really hard to get a precise estimate of what was happening when you were a kid that isn't just a gloss of like you know what how much money you thought your parents had or what era did you live in you know I think it's really hard to test things like that so I I still am a believer because in the animal models deprivation is like immediate elicitor of hoarding did you guys do any like pandemic hoarding I I became like a little bit freaked out about food, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> when <laughs> when the grocery stores started emptying out.
0: That's a great question. I bet everybody has some pandemic courting that they do. I started collecting comic books again when the pandemic came around and at, when it's kind of over, I'm sort of not doing it as much. I like I don't it just sort of came and went.
2: Like just you needed them for payment like or what what was the rationale?
0: I don't know. It felt like maybe just acquiring just sort of acquiring stuff. I don't know. It was,
2: like comforting. Yeah. And, right. Like, mass chaos and like <laughs> uncertainty.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, we we definitely hoarded food. You know, for a while there. I mean, cans of beans. You know, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, especially at the very beginning, and of course, toilet paper, as it was available or not. Um, we certainly tried to acquire that. Um. Yeah. yeah. And some
2: people will go back quicker to like their pre-pandemic levels than others. You know, like. I was a little appalled to realize I have no supplies on hand at all for a catastrophe. You know, like if you're in the Bay area, you might at least have your earthquake kit, you know, some water and some insurance and some batteries, but like having not experienced anything for 20 years, I was like a little laissez faire about it. And so I, I, I do have like these passing thoughts still, but I'm not, I definitely like shifted gears when food became plentiful again.
0: Yeah, yeah, I you know I wonder how this relates to doomsday preppers, right? So people that put aside huge quantities of food and make a bunker and, you know, set up all this stuff which honestly seems like an awful lot of effort for something that seems really unlikely to happen. But I yeah. have to admit there's something appealing about it, um being totally self-sufficient, being ready for anything. Right. I wonder if there's any uh relation between some of those people that really get into that and hoarding behaviors too.
2: Yeah. I mean, I definitely think the doomsday preppers and, you know, they have this um, cultural phenomenon in the Latter-day Saints also that they're supposed to have a year's supply on hand at all times. And the pandemic increased the frequency where it became like almost normative and people were trying to like buy special products online to like keep in store things. And, so i think like a fear of outsiders penetrating is this kind of like core you know scenario that um can can produce this and Yeah, during the pandemic, I was like, "Well, I guess they're the smart ones now," you know. Like I'm just
0: (laughs) now that the apocalypse is coming, right?
2: And I did feel like the Miriam's kangaroo rat at some point because I was like, "Well, I do have some food left over, and I have like no way of protecting myself. So if stuff really did like go bananas, Mad Max style, and people started (laughs) busting in homes and like taking food." I can't protect myself. I'm a Miriam's kangaroo rat. Like as soon as <laughs> as soon as people would start reporting incidents of like break-ins, I'd have to be like digging up, you know, boxes in my yard to hide cans in. So, um, it's like a functional property of like the situation you're in.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It, it leads into this th- thinking about how, what you might call like a scarcity mentality, right? That's sort of what that is, right? It's like the way you're thinking differently if, if there's a lot of stuff available versus when things are scarce. It changes your whole mindset. And in our modern society, generally speaking, if we work together as people across communities and across nations and so on and so forth, we probably have enough stuff that everyone can have some stuff. And yet we are not able to do that or unwilling to do that. And curious about your thoughts in terms of how some of these tendencies towards hoarding or your our, our uh, relationship with stuff and consumerism relates to our ability to cooperate to solve the world's problems or or fail to solve the world's problems?
2: These are really big issues here, Joe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> just you know, just quick, if we could just solve all the world's problems, you know, thirty seconds. Go. Uh,
2: there, there is a super interesting analogous problem with this for water right? And so everybody is now figuring out how are the people in Arizona, for example, going to get water. And now with climate change, there's going to be a lot more arid zones that aren't um, fertile and water is going to have to come from somewhere. Lake Mead is like sinking down into nothingness. You know, dams are running low and rivers are running dry. And There are some communities where they even are already trucking in water. So you don't have any like tap at your house, basically. They have to like bring water in a truck to your house. And I saw a recent study showing that if you felt sort of like communally connected to the next one down the line, you know, like if the city or country downstream from you is something, someone that you feel some, you know, connection or collaboration with, you will, you will give up, you will give in and you will allow like, you know, portions of this water to continue so that they can have enough also, and you'll even restrict your own usage so that they can have enough, you know, so like people are already exhibiting this kind of behavior. But if you feel like it's us against them, like say you're a rancher and your next door neighbor is a rancher and you know, you need the, you need the water or your cows are going to die and you don't really care what happens to his cows. Then people are actually like going underground and like sucking aquifers out (laughs) so Mm. that they can have it all for themselves. Even like, you know, tunneling underground to steal water that is rightfully on someone else's property. So it kind of, there's always this like us versus them mentality. And, um, I do think people are prone to be compassionate, you know, when they really see the suffering of another group or individual, then they're quick to give. But if they don't yet think you're really suffering or there's they want to like place some blame and they don't want to take the cost of cutting down themselves or sharing and they don't see you as the in-group, they're going to withhold and resist. But when it's a true... Like humanitarian crisis, I do think people are actually very giving, but they can do all kinds of mental gymnastics to like, you know, vilify the other or make it their fault or their problem or how I deserve this water because I was so smart enough to do X, Y, Z, you know, and so the us versus them phenomenon, I think is powerful. And it makes sense like possessions are known to be part of what they call an extended self. Right. So like your self-identity has some merge and overlap in like the Venn diagram of, you know, personhood with people's possessions that they value and their family members that they consider in group and their, you know, like culture, workplace that they consider part of themselves. People literally like conceptualize them as part of themselves. And so those are cases where the sharing, you know, is, is fairly natural um and then outside of that realm it's like not self <laughs> and then you know like different dynamic emerges that can you know even be quite cruel
1: well it kind of ties in a bit to the uh environmental impassivity work that you have uh recently uh pu- published talking about how uh emotionality relates to people's responses to climate change and uh issues related to the environment in a in, in a way i i think does that does it seem connected to you or is it, it seem.
2: Yeah, I really see them as connected um, because our research on empathy and altruism is, is similar to the research we do on decision-making. It's like how an emotional state impacts your behavior, you know, toward another person in the world and your decisions. So, you know, people in our altruism research feel sorry for and want to help, individuals that truly seem vulnerable, that they're attached or bonded to, and that need immediate aid um, that they Mm -hmm. feel they can provide, right? So you have to have all these things on board to really like dive right in to help somebody. And then it turns out with the environmental crisis, you know, our consumerism is largely responsible for the environmental crisis. People don't seem to be aware that Americans are like the biggest historical driver of anthropogenic climate change. Um, We actually use more than China if you account for per capita, right? Because there's a lot more people in China. So um, at a per capita level, we're the highest um, consumers and emitters in the world and have been for a long time. So, you know, our ways have what they call externalities. I love that word in economics. (laughs) do people care that's the question like do they care that there's externalities and the answer turns out to be not always you know like it's not as obvious as i thought it was you know as a sort of bleeding heart liberal myself i just thought it was obvious that if you saw this beautiful forest clear cut or this majestic mountain be chopped in you know the top chopped off off the appalachian mountain or you know a giant flaming oil spill in the gulf that it would make you sad and you would want to do something about it right but people actually vary a lot in the degree that they experience these things as emotional and that they they conceive of nature itself as like a beautiful wonderful wonderful thing that's vulnerable to our um action so not everybody conceptualizes it that way um and liberals do more so and so In the studies, we ran a whole series of studies um, funded by the Environmental Defense Fund and the Graham Sustainability Institute. And we found that people think of the earth in all these different ways and people who are politically liberal are more likely to be environmentalists, to report being empathic, and to give money to environmental organizations. And they view the earth and nature as more vulnerable. So, like, as a target for altruism, you know, like the way we want to help, like, vulnerable children, liberals view the earth as vulnerable, or the species that are at risk as vulnerable. But, like, people who are more politically conservative aren't necessarily conceptualizing the world that way. Um, they, They view it as less vulnerable, and they're more emotionally impassive to these kinds of images that I described earlier. And so it's really interesting because you know, historically, all environmentalism has been messaged with save the earth, and then like these horrible distressing stories and images of, you know, what's happening to nature and our natural resources and the people who live from them. And people just assumed if you weren't trying to change your behavior, you hadn't yet heard, you hadn't yet realized how bad things were. But there are people receiving the messages and They're like, okay, I mean, that's not awesome, but I shouldn't have to change my behavior because it's not about me and nature isn't this like wonderful oasis to me. It's just like this thing out there that I need to access resources. So, you know, it's just like really different conceptually depending on the individual. And it's not just like a political alignment thing. These are, you know, all correlations. It's not like, oh, if you vote... If you voted conservative in the last election, you're definitely impassive to environmental destruction. That's not the case. It's a a correlational thing.
0: Yeah. And when I think about that conservative, I mean, sort of at at a kind of a root level means the conservation of, you know, existing status, including the environment. So, I mean, there's definitely a strain of environmentalism in conservatism.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, didn't Nixon create the EPA, right? Yeah, exactly. That whole story.
2: Yeah. And and before Nixon, um, you know, they called the conservation movement that was supported by Republican presidents. Yeah. Know, um, historically, we learned about this actually in our sustainability class and I hadn't really appreciated it. Historically, it wasn't a partisan issue. And there were plenty of presidents who supported the conservation of wildlife and the creation of the national parks and, the, you know, Conservation Corps and all these things and setting aside resources for their protection and that was not a partisan issue and i do think it probably matters if you're talking about some kind of nature or resource relevant to you or not so Mm -hmm. even in in current day like since reagan approximately it became a partisan issue like um jimmy carter had installed solar panels on the white house and they were working fine and um President Reagan dismantled them (laughs) even though like they were like saving energy and like who's against that, you know, but he actually like took them down as like a sign of like rejection of this idea. Um, And so ever since then, it's been increasingly used to polarize people like intentionally by, you know, lobbyists and people who are, you know, going out of their way to create this division. It's not, it's not, I don't think inherent in the people. And, you know, lots of people in America live in Midwestern states where they hunt and they, you know, have ATVs and they go fishing and they have a fishing cabin and they love the outdoors, you know, like for recreation and they would preserve it. And they agree to things like limits on hunting to like preserve the colony for the future, you know. And so, you know, people are engaged in that, you know, it's just... It's a lot harder to get people to save something they can't see, and they and they don't really know what it is, and it's not their people getting implicated. So, you know, like for example, Americans have a lot of clothes. Let's say, sorry, Joe's father, may he rest <laughs> in I, I want to admit, I really like clothes myself, and so I'm constantly like fighting myself against this urge to like get clothes versus be simple and um, minimalist Um, but but you know clothes are super abundant so if they were nuts you know it would be fall and the leaves would be like raining acorns everywhere and you know a t-shirt is probably $3.99 if you go to the right sale at um, Old Navy so we have a lot of them and people don't know what to do with all these clothes. And so they give them to like Goodwill and Goodwill doesn't know what to do with all these clothes because most of them, nobody wants to buy. So then what they do is they smash them into like cubes the same way they do like recycling and they export the cubes to someplace like Ghana, for example, where, you know, they have a market and they release the cubes like once a week and everybody can bid on a cube and you don't really know what's in it, but you cut it open and, see if you can find something to sell at your market and then the ones that nobody claims or don't know what to do with they just kind of end up strewn all over the place you know like the, the waterway is actually like totally littered with all this junk from us you know and they and just think the energy it took to ship all those clothes from China and Malaysia in the first place and then we bought it for $3.99 and then we like wore it at the 5k and then we (laughs) gave it back to the reuse center and then they shipped it all the way back to Ghana and nobody wanted it and now it's in a lake somewhere you know like but we don't know like nobody knows where this stuff comes from or where it ends up right like you can feel really good about yourself and pat yourself on the back you took something to Salvation Army because you feel like I supported charity I got rid of stuff you know but you don't really know it ends up you know where it ends up And, um, but you, you can't see it. So like our empathy machinery evolved for, you know, direct perception, you know, like you guys study perception. So, you know, like seeing something with your own two eyes and hearing it with your own two ears is like, there's no replacement for that in, in terms of like the effect it has on your brain. And so it's just really hard to get people to protect a resource that, doesn't appear to impact them at all. You know, but in the long run these things all they all end up affecting one another, right? Like Joe mentioned earlier, all of our resources are gonna end up having to be shared multi, you know, nationally. There they're you know, people are hoping to get wheat from Ukraine and corn from America and, you know, beef from Brazil. Like it's already international, but it's just taking our brains a little while to catch up, I think, to the interdependence of all this.
1: Well, yeah, it's kind of what you were saying earlier about how if you want to take some action to be helpful, right, uh, in some Mm -hmm. capacity, it's super important that you have good information about how things work and that you feel like you can take an action that that will actually work, that will be effective. And I feel like maybe that's where some of the Disconnects are happening, right? It's like it's like you say we don't know where all these things are coming from and where they're going, and we don't know really what the real problems are. I mean, certainly not this really you know,
2: sure what we're supposed to do about it, right? Like, right. like you're saying there there's not really a strong locus of control, especially if somebody is an alarmist. You know, like a lot of climate marketing is alarmist in nature, and it's like we're all gonna die. Like, you know, it's the world's catching on fire. And that just makes people overwhelmed and feel like they have no control over the situation. So it's like, what am I going to do? Why bother? I'm just going to have to live my life. You know, there's there's nothing I can do about it. So, yeah, I think the problem has to be broken down into like much smaller parts that people can participate in and observe and like know what to do about like we had one study where the environmental defense fund asked people to share stories about monarch butterflies and people like went bananas they were like so excited to talk about monarch butterflies they got this like unprecedented response from the membership and non-members even on their website um people talking about monarch butterflies and they made like a lot of contributions also because The act was very concrete. Like there were a certain number of hectares of, you know, milkweed type plants that were going to be planted for every $20 or $50 you gave. So it was very concrete. Like, what would your money do? And how would that end up impacting these butterflies that you love and appreciate, you know? And so people are willing to act if they, you know, have this bond fostered. People have this bond with monarchs because they, had them in like a school science class or like saw them in the backyard or, you know, like in California, you probably get to see the migration. Um, I don't think I've ever seen the migration in person. It's, you know, I've just seen pictures. It's like magical. And so like that sense of awe and mystery and beauty evokes altruism in people. And um, it helps so much if you're not only attached to a thing, but you know what to do, you know? And um, so I, I think, you know, our marketing needs to be better. <laughs>
1: Yeah, No, I agree. And I i mean, I think that with a marketing thing, I think about that with climate change, just the idea that the 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 term climate change, it seems like really ineffective in that way is like marketing. It's like, well, how can I, I mean, how can I as an individual affect the climate? Like,
2: uh, you know, yeah. it, feels it feels like
1: boiling like, the ocean.
2: Yeah, it feels like at a scale so massive that they always talk about the drop in the bucket phenomenon, you know, like. Yeah. You're the butterfly wing, and then there's these winds (laughs) over the whole globe, and then who knows? Wait a
0: second, though. Wait a second, though. We need to be a little more optimistic here (laughs) on the holiday season, right? Um, So, what can? Okay, so it's not all um, something that feels out of our control. Um, What's the? Is there an optimistic message to this? Well, I mean, I guess using uh, psychology, right? Like, how can we? Yeah, some psychology. So, question is, so having an idea about. Where these tendencies come from, um you know what what's going on in the brain, is this uh something that can can it directly inform clinical applications so um you know for hoarders, I suppose, but I love that your research is is much more encompassing than that and um could you know have political implications or could have um environmental implications so you know how does how does how does an individual uh cope with all this information? And and be able to deal with uh, stuff uh, possessions effectively.
2: Yeah, I you know I have been wrestling with this, and I keep kind of if anybody follows my research, they're like, where's the pattern? And I like keep shifting it slightly to get it more directly impacting like people's real world behavior. And so I've been thinking a lot about this, and you know, saying, look, we just can't do any more silly experiments in the lab that demonstrate something I probably already knew is the case that won't change the world, right? Like, it's not going to change the real world, then I shouldn't do it. Like, what can I do that might actually change something? And so that's why I've been doing these, like, collaborations with companies and nonprofits. But here's my idea. Tell me what you think. (laughs) My idea is, you know, your brain has these kind of stable points stable kind of set points and one of them is like this really strong hedonic immediate reward phenomenon and one of them is like pleasure and enjoyment that is like lower frequency but like you know the broader broader band and sort of like life
0: happiness kind of or yeah
2: yeah so if you imagine like sometimes you can think of like you know, the box of candy that you just ate is sort of like the crack cocaine for your nucleus accumbens, you know, where you're like Get this immediate boost. And you're like, that was awesome. You know, like, and now I just want some more, you know, and all it does is like habituate your reward system. And so the same amount later isn't going to do the trick. And now you need more. And like, it's just this whole cycle, right? Like, are you ever going to be satisfied? And you can say this about anything, you know, about Money, sex, material goods—you know, food, drinks, um, drugs of abuse—like they, they all have this phenomenology where, when you you really want it, you'll do anything to get it. You're loving it momentarily. You might even have like a stage of regret or like sickness afterwards, <laughs> and then you like immediately want more, right? Or yeah, not and we've,
0: we've talked about in a previous episode with Michael Frank, we've talked about in this distinction of what dopamine is doing because people typically say, you know, I get a shot of dopamine as though it's sort of a reward chemical, but dopamine's the thing that's causing you to want more, not necessarily um, to, to experience any positive effects. So it's really more of a an urge. Right. Like not motivational. Necessarily... Yeah, yeah it's right.
2: Like a learning and motivational system. And you have like different cells. Kent Berridge and Terry Robinson study this. They have different cells in the nucleus accumbens for liking and wanting and like the liking appreciation is a little bit more like opioid dependent, um, yeah. and the wanting is like the dopaminergic version. It's it's very complicated. We often think.
0: think of them as the, as as the same thing, but but right. separating that like that I think is helpful.
2: Right. But then if you think about like what's the kind of like slow old fashioned reward where you're like yeah that was really good you know like I feel like I feel. Oh, I have a great that. example for you. Okay. Kids. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kids a walk are... in the woods is an easier yeah, one. Go, yeah. yeah walk walk in, the okay, woods. there you
0: go. Walk in the woods.
2: Trees are actually, like, strongly implicated in research for well-being. Like, trees per se. And they even had a recent study about birds, you know, adding to people's enjoyment. Even if you subtract out the presence of trees, the birds even added more to this, like, variance. And sometimes, like... You know, if you've been exercising or you've had like a long day, you haven't had a glass of water, just like a cold glass of water can be like,
0: ah, (laughs) it's just
2: great, you know, or like a carrot that's cooked to the right amount, you know, or, you know, like spending time with your friends and, you know, like having a laugh, like talking to you guys. Those are like really like genuinely enjoyable things that are pretty sustainable and like mostly free, you know, like. Um, so we're like we're kind of like caught up in this cycle at like a local minimum of life happiness that's kind of more damaging to ourselves more expensive more damaging to the environment but there's like another level that we can exist at where we try and emphasize these um, intrinsic rewards that are like a little bit more what your body naturally evolved to appreciate, not like hyper-concentrated versions of them, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so my idea was to make it a um, challenge, like a competition, like the same way people will run a 5k, which is kind of painful, and they have to get money, but they do it anyway, because they kind of wanted to run anyway. You know, like, will you join like the no beef challenge? You know, like, Mm no beef February, join in the challenge, you know, like no shopping September, you know, like see if you can get people to like, enjoy the competitive and challenging nature of it. Because people do actually enjoy challenges. And especially if it's something they kind of wanted to do anyway, but they need a push and they need a little social approval, you know. So I'm going to try and see if like, you can have some contests that people will
0: I love that. That makes so much sense. Um, So what month is National No Shopping Month going to be? Because you can announce (laughs) it right here on the show.
2: I haven't worked it out, but don't you think September sounds good? Because it just has the alliterative um, component. But people are going to say, oh, the economy is going to crash, right? The economy is going to crash. But no, the economy won't crash. Like. Americans, compared to other nations, are you know shopping a lot more.
0: And no, they they'll just shop twice as much the next month. it will make up for it, and probably that. <laughs> yeah, I, I was
1: just looking this up. There is a a no shop, uh, a, a no what is it? It's called No Spend November.
2: No Spend November, mm, no because spend they have November. Black Friday in it. That seems like like
1: that's like actually challenging.
2: That's adding a lot. Because if you do a September, you still let people have Black Friday. Um, Mm -hmm. But Giving Tuesday, guys, you know, you got to like start changing the proportions because it turns out helping other people, charitable donations make you feel good. So um, like we could try to get people to shift the proportion from how much they got on Black Friday and how much they gave on Giving Tuesday. And like everybody post their two bar graphs or their pie chart <laughs> Yeah, you want you want like it, it needs to be a social norm. We want social approval. We want to fit in. We don't want to stand out. So, you know, you need your like subculture at least of individuals to be accepting of this. So you you have to be able to package things in ways that aren't just palatable to, you know, one side of the country or another.
1: Oh, for sure. Things like climate change are especially challenging because uh the benefits of reducing emissions are slow and diffuse, and the impacts of you know negative events are concentrated and you know quite quite local. So, for example, you know um, you know in the, in California right now we have this twelve hundred year drought that we're experiencing. Right. Um, you know, and so you know if you live here, you can quite it's quite noticeable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, other places. country it might be much less noticeable so you know how can you create an environment where people are excited to to work to reduce this uh diffuse uh but nevertheless existential uh threat of climate change you know
2: yeah i mean i think that's where our brains as psychologists go go right away like our brain in some ways is designed to be you know, like a wasteful, hedonic bastard, you know, <laughs> but not, that's just one side of us, right? Like, right. we're also this very generous, cooperative, patient individual, like, there, there's both sides going on there. And so I had wanted to write a book about this. And, um, you know, the people receiving the book proposals, they don't really like the idea of the book about how your brain is designed to make you terrible. You know, like they're like, people aren't (laughs) going to want to read that. That sounds so negative, you know? And you can't be blaming and nobody wants finger wagging. And, you know, like this message has to be different. And so I think the message should be, think of how awesome your life would be if you only had to work half as much because you didn't need money to buy so much of the things we're currently buying. And you've got to spend more time with your family and you've got to walk around in the woods and you could ride your bike places because everything wouldn't be designed around cars and the air quality wouldn't be terrible. Um, Like just imagine a future where your life is so much more relaxing. You know, so if you like factor in the role of stress on your reward motivation, going all the way back to the kangaroo rats, right? People under stress want these rewards as ways to like mitigate this really uncomfortable immediate feeling right so it's like if you make me write a proposal all day and i really don't feel like sitting on my laptop i'll do it if you give me like a giant muffin <laughs> you know, <laughs> like and a latte you know i'll be like oh, okay i'll do it you know but um if we didn't have to like produce at such a high level and everyone just sort of like calmed the whole system down a little we would have much more enjoyable lives with lower externalities. And the economy wouldn't crash. It would just be different. Right? It would be like the things we focus on making and using our money for and using our time for would shift. Um, but that doesn't mean you don't need things. Like you still would need solar panels and wind farms and you'd need some electric buses and you'd need new roads that like – took like public transportation into account, you know, like you still need things in this like sort of Stephanie's utopia. <laughs> <laughs> but I just like the idea of selling the idea to people by making their life happier. You know, like I think I like there's that. some things in the, in the pandemic people really enjoyed being with their families and not having to commute and look at the sky turned blue because no one was driving. Can you believe it? You know, like I think, We have to learn from some of that enjoyment, and people—people are there, they're trying to make changes.
1: Oh, absolutely! I think that might be a good place to start to wind this uh, episode up. You know, with the idea of, yeah, what can we do to like relax a little bit more, be a little bit more chill, in you know, uh, the future of a little bit lower growth for more happiness sounds like a great, a great way to go. So maybe maybe
2: I'll people with one idea though, one concrete thing they can do is you know when you start to think about what do you want people to give you for the holidays try and change the mindset and what can i give to somebody to make them feel good You know, Mm. what can i give i like
0: that that's research
2: shows that people are happier when they give than receive so if you can like catch yourself in that moment oh i wish somebody would buy me this i'm going to put it on a list you know just try and like Switch it and say, What could I give to that person to make them feel good? And that will in turn for sure make you feel good.
1: Maybe one last question, which is, What are you really excited about in terms of your research and the work that you have going on?
2: Yeah, I'm really excited about this idea of taking it to the real world, you know, like demonstrating that these phenomena are effective and have utility in the real world. You know, how can we make therapist-client relationships more empathic, monitoring people's emotional physiology, you know, submitting it to machine learning, and then figuring out, you know, like, what are the keys of showing comfort in an environment that people consider stressful? And, you know, if I do one of these challenges, will it make people more sustainable? Can you get people to sign an agreement to give up beef for a time? And if they do, like you're saying, is there going to be a boomerang and then they're going to like go back and eat more or they're going to be like, oh, that actually wasn't so bad. I could probably do that a couple of days a week or, you know, I could easily do that a month or two a year. So can can you get it to stick it is kind of in the real world. Can you get these phenomena to work? That's that's what I'm excited about.
0: Well, great to have you on the show a second time. So thanks again, Stephanie, for being with us.
2: Thank you so much. You guys have such good insights. You're um, like really drill right to the heart of the matter and like the scope of the problem. I love it.
0: We appreciate how well you've talked about all of your research and, and it's always great hearing about what you're up to.
2: Well, thanks for having me.